0: Welcome to Text Message. I'm Nate Langson, And I'm Ian Morris. And later on, we're going to get our wands out as we talk about Harry Potter uh, being re-released in iBooks form. Now, before you put down your spell book and think this is a travesty of technology podcasting, because what has Harry got to do with tech? Everything's wizardry and magic. Don't worry, there's a great angle, and we've got a great guest to talk about it with us. But first, the UK police force has seen a spike in drone incidents, according to The Garden. The Garden? <laughs> Possible Freudian slip there on the old conversation banana. Um, the Guardian <laughs> had a, uh, filed a Freedom of Information request. And it had found that there has been a significant increase in the number of cases where members of the public have reported nuisance drone flying to the local police force. So let's have a look at some of these numbers that Guardian got hold of. Thames Valley Police recorded 21 incidents in 2014 to 1. That rose to 80 this year so far. And the Metropolitan Police logged 21 cases this year, up from only one the previous year. So that's roughly, well, I was going to say, actually, it's roughly um, quite a big rise that was similar between the two, but it isn't. One's 21 times greater than last year. (laughs) So we'll just skip over that. Um, Anyway, the, uh, the concerns have flagged eyebrows if that is such a thing with scotland yard who says that in the last 24 months concerns have ranged from drones over massive crowds at christmas events and devices being used to ferry drugs into prisons or to commit sexual offenses now, i don't want to get too crude about this because the mental image in my head did uh, initially have a drone with a pair of miniature hands on <laughs> but, um, but of course that's not the case this is almost certainly uh, because of the cameras fixed to most of these mm. drones So, number one, I mean, I'm not surprised by this because sales of drones have gone up through the roof. So the fact that there are, you know, naughty people playing with these in undesirable ways,
1: possibly not that surprising. Would you agree with that, I would say that's the least surprising thing ever said in a conversation.
0: Well, this is good news then. Consider the following uh, tangent a bonus. There are three British companies who have banded together to do something. These companies are Enterprise Control Systems, Blighter Surveillance Systems, and Chess Dynamics. Now, these are companies that produce things along the lines of RF. Uh, Radio jammers, so they're the kind of things that block radio signals and nuisance phone calls, I guess, things like that. Um, CCTV cameras, radar systems for scanning traffic, all that sort of stuff. And what they've done is they've come together to produce something that, according to the BBC, is called an anti-UAV defense system. And this is the really interesting thing, because we're seeing this quite large british uprising not only in the interest in drones but also in british companies banding together to try and produce new ways to fight them and so there's a a bbc report that came out this week to say that these companies have come up with a device that essentially jams the drone signal in the sky and will effectively force it to for want of a better word plummet to the earth um, essentially, it's jamming the signal between the operator's handheld, uh, well, it's not always handheld, but it's the op- the operator, if you like, and the technology he's using or she's using to control the UAV and the UAV itself. It basically can't get any signal and will, if it hasn't got an automated mode, fall or come to a standstill and then the um, the operator will go and have to fetch
1: it like some sort of large dead plastic bird. I think they mostly do have an automated mode. I think it uh, the the thing that makes drones easy to fly is the fact that they are sort of basically self writing and self hovering and all that kind of stuff. So I think prob- probably what this what will happen here is that um yeah, they'll just hover in their, you know, I'm lost mode and then eventually descend. Which is a good good way of doing it actually. It um it is, and some of them do know because they have GPS. They do know
0: where they were launched from. Yeah. The, so the well, idea being they can go back, which is fine if your
1: operator hasn't moved. If you're doing it on a boat, not necessarily ideal. Well, you shouldn't do I, the 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 um DJI who do all the clever. You know, the, their drones are very clever and very advanced, and uh, you know the, you shouldn't move at all. It's it's a, just a terrible idea because this thing's worth like a grand, um, mm. and you want it back essentially. Well,
0: so my brother, Andy, who's who's been on the show before um, a few times, has uh, had a couple of these. And one of them the other day, I can't remember now if, he, if it broke in the air or if the battery, oh, I think yeah. the battery may have died. And it plummeted 200 feet from the air and shattered on the ground. Now, that wasn't ideal, I think, by anybody's standards. No. Um, but it does cause concern that these things are capable of going wrong. And plummeting. And so I'm always concerned that as companies start coming up with new ways to tackle what looks like a new business opportunity, you know, who's regulating this? Um, And that's the the, the final point I wanted to come to on this topic. And unfortunately, this was actually mentioned in the BBC piece as well, which is that um, the UK Civil Aviation Authority actually isn't investigating using any of these technologies soon. Uh, the Beeb's quoting uh, somebody a spokesperson from the UK who says it's not something that we really feel the need to be doing. Our focus is on educating
1: consumers. Yeah, they don't really do that. It's not it's not their Like, I think this is more down to private industries to say we don't want drones over our land and then to to, to pay to set up something along this line. And that's pretty reasonable. And actually, it's quite a good solution because DGI obviously have their GPS blackout. So you can't, in theory, take a DGI drone into Heathrow airspace, say. Um, And with these alongside it, that's kind of a, a, a good idea, a good way of stopping people from flying where they shouldn't.
0: There's an interesting thing I saw on uh, on, a, on a video a podcast the other day about a gentleman who flies um, a bunch of drones near the new Apple campus in Cupertino yeah. in California. I've seen those, that footage. It's amazing. Well, the footage is very interesting, but there's a story behind it, which is that there is a law that Apple owns something around 100 feet of the space above the campus within which it's not permitted for anyone to fly drones. So what the chap has to do is just make sure that he only goes into the space they're building above the threshold that Apple has got the legal right to enforce. And then he can prove, well, actually, I was at, you know, your your restriction. It's something like 83 feet, I think. So, well, I was at 85 feet, so... Technically, not a problem, um, but it's just it's just another interesting thing. I mean, as a side note, the U.S. Um, Federal Aviation Authority. I, I did see a note saying that they are signing agreements to test technology that detects drones and um, and then reports where the drone is. Whereas here, it seems that the our aviation uh, regulator is focusing more on just trying to get people to understand the dangers and the the safeguards that that are in place to um, to allow for drone flight to be possible I mean the last time we took one out um recently in west london i just called the police first
1: oh right okay good I,
0: idea I, we, we were in a, we were in a park and i just called no not 999 yeah, just obviously. the local local force <laughs> and just said we've got a drone we're in this particular part of Ealing. a is that all right and b just wanted to let you know and they said it's fine just don't fly near windows and mm. if it's got a camera don't fly it um in front of people or children I thought, well, that's a perfectly, re- a perfectly reasonable explanation and perfectly reasonable. And, and then they knew if anybody called, they said, don't worry, is it on the common? Yes, that's fine. It's just someone who's um,
1: testing a, uh, a camera or It's, it's interesting. You. I mean, it, <clears throat> part of me understands the need to be careful about such things. But at the same time, I don't want to just stop drones from flying. I, d- I don't think that's... It that feels like a really restrictive thing that shouldn't happen. But I, but I do take the point that there is a danger... Particularly with batteries running out and things like that. Um, so it's a, it's a really difficult one. This I've spent a lot of time thinking about it because I've got a drone that I uh, that actually doesn't work at the moment, but I would like to get it fixed. And I think I do think oh, it's becoming more and more difficult to fly it. But whenever I've had a drone out, people have been far more interested in it than they have annoyed by its presence. You know, they 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 find them fascinating. Intrigue and
0: annoyance are one side of the fence, Mm. but the one that I really fear is uh, paranoia, because the last thing I want is somebody coming out with a shotgun and thinking I'm a terrorist. Well, Because that's one of the complaints that that does happen, that in fact there was someone who
1: reported a crime because a a, a man saw a drone near his garden and shot it with his rifle. Well, that's an interesting story, that one, because it um the guy has well, the guy who was flying the drone says he has data that says it was high enough for it not to matter and the guy said oh it was my daughter was uh sunbathing in the garden in a bikini i don't want that drone around and you know i, I, I get the points i get yeah. the points but having said that that's why we don't as a rule allow guns in this country it's uh just to stop all the shooting which is largely unnecessary Well, before we get onto a topic that uh,
0: likely will inspire political emails, um, let's let's call it a day there for the topic. But do let us know what you think about drones and and these drone laws. Should we be educating people more rigorously about what is and isn't acceptable when flying a drone? Do we think it's a good thing? that companies are getting together to create independent products to, for want of a better term, shoot them the hell out of the sky and have them plummet to the crust of our Earth. The Earth. Uh, Let us know your opinion. Podcast at natelankson.com Well, this week I was pottering around the... uh, uh, I'm really sorry, but but let me finish. I was pottering around the internet, and upon what did I stumble? A Harry Potter book on the iBookstore. Now, this isn't in itself uh, particularly interesting news. Old book comes to new store. But the truth, and in fact, the intriguing part of this story is that these are new interactive editions created um, in tandem, in partnership, if you like, with J.K. Rowling and Apple. Now, I thought this was an interesting story because uh, the Harry Potter books, apart from in their audiobook forms, have not been available on Apple's platforms. They have been only available through J.K. Rowling's Pottermore store but these are interactive editions they have new illustrations they've got author notes all sorts of things the whole series has been made available and it just got me thinking there's a generation of children now who were not old enough to read or perhaps not even born when the harry potter books were at the 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 peak of their popularity uh, or before the, the films came out and i'm wondering is this what kids are after is this what parents are after for their kids that the the existing printed pages were not good enough to capture their children's attention, or indeed their own attention perhaps. So I wanted to find out a bit more, and I got in touch with a gentleman called Andy Robertson who is a family tech expert, and I wanted to find out from him what exactly makes these books so special to warrant a press release, and of course, more so, to be on this podcast.
2: I think there's a demand for them to be in the space, because then they're in that sort of ecosystem of kids browsing Books and apps in, on their tablets, and obviously they want to see Harry Potter there. But my experience, particularly with my kids, is that actually almost the reverse. They they would prefer to read a book as a physical product, as a you know physical artifact. Um, but then would quite like secondary experiences that would maybe be apt so uh, my boys are into this beast quest series and there's a really good beast quest game Um, and I was asking them over tea actually around you know what what they think of this and all of them said actually I'd prefer a a physical book even if it had clever pretty pictures that did stuff
0: interesting I found that quite surprising actually being surrounded by tech I don't think I was expecting to hear they were more inclined to opt for something more traditional.
2: Yeah, I think it's perhaps because they do use the tablets a lot. And we, we we kind of try to put limits on that. So there's the idea of maybe limited screen time. So they sort of think, well, if I'm going to use my screen time for something, I'll use it to play a game or to do an interactive experience. And then I'll use my non-screen time to do something like read a book. And they sort of seem to segment it like that. So I think because because they do so much on their tablets, to have something different, um, they quite enjoy and we still do sort of bedtime stories, even though some of them are a little bit old. But so they still quite like it. Um, and again, they want a physical book that they can peer over and see see the pictures.
0: Just for context, Andy, how old are your kids at the moment?
2: I keep changing ages. I try and get it right. Um, seven nine and eleven.
0: Okay, let's say you hadn't asked them for their opinion first, and maybe they were a bit younger. Yeah. Would you be inclined to go straight for the printed books, or would you go for a digital version like this as their first experience of something like Harry Potter?
2: I think it's quite nice as an introduction, but I think that's what it is. It's an introduction to a series of books rather than an introduction to then reading it on, on a tablet. I think it probably are it maybe depends what sort of family you are. Um, I mean, I could, I, my take on this was actually, this might be something which would be quite useful for commuters who want to reread the Harry Potter books. And obviously they can't carry, they don't want to carry big, the big books around with them so they can then read it more easily on their um, Apple devices. But then I was realizing that I don't think there's like a bundle to buy them all. They have to buy them all, all individually. So it would have been nice to see the complete collection bought relatively cheaply.
0: I agree. The UK prices are 6.99, which seems reasonable as there's extra content, but a bundle would have been nice, yeah. The other side, I suppose, is that there, there have been audiobook versions of these stories on iTunes for years. So I was a bit disappointed these weren't included in some way, maybe like a, a read-along.
2: Yeah, I like the read-along idea, particularly if you've got a, a child who's learning to read, if they can listen to someone reading something and, and follow along in the book at the same time, there's obviously then they start to make the connection between the words... I also a little while ago there was a there was this um, trend for the PlayStation called Wonderbook, which is an interactive storybook, and the headline product really that was I, the idea it was going to spark. but didn't never quite caught caught light. I don't think was. Um, some J.K. Rowling content around the Harry Potter theme. And it, that this was truly interactive, though. So you put the book in front of the PlayStation.
0: Yeah, it was called The Book of Spells, I think.
2: That's right, yes. And then there was A Book of Potions as well. So they, they sort of did two iterations in two years. And they were really good, actually. They were, they were you know, quite unusual experiences. So I think potentially they, they struggled to find a market because people didn't quite realise what they did. But that is that sort of thing my kids are much more excited about, which takes them to it was proper augmented reality and it was that real content, but also interactions <clears throat> that they were using with their the move controller to actually use the wand in the space, and I've not seen you know how interactive these um, iBooks versions are, but I'd imagine it's more just like pictures on a page moving rather than something as fully featured as Wonderbook. book. I think to catch kids' attention these days, you do you need to do something quite special. So it's obviously something new and different, rather than just saying hey, you can read your book, but now it's on a tablet.
0: There are a lot of interactive elements to these re-release books, and there are plenty of books going on sale digitally for the first time that have visually enhanced features in some form, particularly in kids' books, I think. And it makes me wonder whether savvy future authors should be thinking about interactive components to their stories as they're writing them, in the same way we did at Wired when writing content for a magazine that would be printed as well as presented digitally every month as tablet editions.
2: I think, I mean, really, it's, so it's a similar thing happening in the opposite direction with video games. And I think it's potentially a mistake to try and sort of cross-pollinate media too much. Because I think books are brilliant at being books, and you start to try and make them be something else, and they can lose their sort of bookishness. It's a similar sort of thing, to, I think, when a video game starts making itself like a movie. You know, video games are great because they're video games and interactive. And I think, so for me, books, you know, are great because they're this very sort of traditional thing and you know what you know what it is and I I like interactivity but I don't want it in my books that makes sense I suppose it's becoming about
0: choice which is always exciting sometimes I just want a story and sometimes I want to have a hand in unfolding that story but if I'm feeling too lazy to play a video game then I'll watch a movie and have a story played out for me hands-free if you like
2: yeah, we, and there's this sort of whole trend of watching games on YouTube, <laughs> which takes that to sort of the next step, where you get you literally get someone else to play the game.
0: Andy Robertson, thanks for joining today. It's been it's been really interesting to get your input as a parent and a tech commentator combined. Um, tell people about your programs and videos on YouTube.
2: Yeah, so we look at games and technology for families, and it's it's kind of a low excitement look um, compared to lots of other YouTube channels, I think, which are trying to be sort of kids entertainment we try and be slightly more considered and offer something which entertains kids but also offers some useful information for parents as well and you can find us at um, it's youtube.com forward slash family gamer tv
0: time for a bit of feedback we've got a couple we're going to start with one before we get into our next story this comes from rob And Rob says, in reference to your rant about Virgin and upload speeds, it's not just podcasters and media folk who need broadband upload speeds. Like many others, I work from home. Now, this was uh, going back to last week's podcast, I think, Ian, or possibly the week before, where we talked about Virgin upping everybody's speed to 200 meg uh, down if you're on their top-end fiber optic package, but not increasing the upload speed at all. Uh, which lags behind quite considerably. So he says, uh, Rob continues, bit of context. I'm an IT consultant working for a large technology company, and when I'm not out with customers, I work from a home office. Uh, Rob says, I need to be able to send emails with attachments. Do voice calls using Skype, however. However, I can't expense, expense this as a work item. According to HMRC, if I didn't have internet connection before I started the job and my job mandated I needed one, then I can claim that as a business expense. However, if I already had an internet connection, then I'm not allowed to claim that as an expense. And as much as I'd like to have business-grade broadband into my house, my employer isn't going to fund that and my wife isn't going to be best pleased with additional holes being drilled through the walls. So I've got to use the personal broadband connection. Just thought that was a bit of a spin on your guys' argument around upload speeds becoming more important in the way we do things. 100% agree with the comment about Apple Photos uploading 4K videos and Google's Photos app is similar in process. Um, and he says the new Google Nexus 6P does 4K video as well. He enjoys the podcast. Thanks, Rob, very much. Yeah, so it's interesting. Basically, he's in a slight uh, difficult situation where it's not just as simple as him getting broadband drilled into his house because um, the the tax office wouldn't cover that as a business expense for his home office and his wife doesn't want drills coming through the building, which, fair point. But even if um, he was alone and working in his underwear eating cheese crisps, which I have done on more than one occasion when working from home, um, it wouldn't matter as far as tax was concerned. He'd still have to use his existing internet connection. So it does sort of warrant the case that there should be a better option for upload speeds for people who don't or can't have a business connection but do need faster upload. I thought it was quite interesting, Ian.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. And um, I, I, I think that everyone should have faster upload. It's just i just think it's it not having fast upload belongs to an era that's long gone i mean technically it's not a problem uh it is it's not as easy as download i guess uh but i think it should happen and um there are some technical reasons it's important to uh like keeping pace with a the downstream there is a certain ratio um and of course with virgin particularly if you um if you flood your upstream, it can affect your downstream as well. Mm. Uh, it was worth remembering and uh, can cause problems, but you can obviously always do something your end about that.
0: One more news story we wanted to get to, which is something that Ian and I are both quite passionate about. Not passionate like Emmanuel. 1970s film. I was terrified to find out that my mother went to see with a boyfriend once when she was a lot younger. Not the conversation you want with your mother when you're 18 years old and she discovers you've got a copy on DVD in your bedroom. Don't actually know why I'm saying any of this on the podcast, actually. This isn't in our lineup. It's completely irrelevant. (laughs) Let's see if it makes the final cut, shall we? <laughs> Let's continue into this news. Uh, the Microsoft Surface Pro 4 has been announced, and beautiful it looks as well, uh, much like Emmanuel in the aforementioned. Now, you're just um, making it hard to cut it now. You know what, mate? It's, it's fine. I've dug myself into a hole. and <laughs> You're
1: prepared to deal with it.
0: A, well, there's a bar down here, you know, and if the world does end up in nuclear winter, I'll be slightly longer lived than everybody else. So we'll just... <laughs> Continue to exist in this little podcast bunker that we've made. Uh, and you're in here too, buddy. Thanks. Um, so the Surface Pro 4 starts at £749, and that's for the most basic model. Um, we're not going to directly compare it to the iPad because it's probably more comparable to um, something like uh, the, the very high end Samsungs and Lenovo's of, of the world. It's sort of a fully fledged PC in a tablet body with a keyboard uh, optional. And it's got 128 gig of storage, 4 gig of RAM, Intel Core M3 processor. That's one of the fanless designs, and that is on the lower end of the speed spectrum in terms of the 749 model. So, Ian, um, firstly, I wanted to get your thoughts on the model itself, as more of a Microsoft aficionado than I am, uh, and also the pricing, 749 quid. Mm. Interesting. It is. What are your views? Well,
1: the Surface Pro is a decent machine. It's well-liked by everyone that uses it. it, I think pricing-wise, I mean, it mean, is just a laptop, really. It's it's just a slightly different form factor, isn't it? It's uh, designed very much for people who sort of want a bit more flexibility. But ultimately, I think most people end up using it with a keyboard dock anyway, um, which obviously I suppose we should come on to um, because there was another product, wasn't there? Uh, the yes. Surface Book, which obviously is a first for Microsoft. Um, well, it's and- Microsoft's first first laptop yeah. ever. Yeah, and it, I think... I mean, we, you know, the thing about that is it's a really interesting product. Um, they were obviously very excited about it. I've never seen a Microsoft press conference like this before. It was pure. It was a really unique sort of thing. It, uh, it's difficult to explain when you watch an Apple press conference. They have a real style and a tone yeah. and it's always very consistent and it's nice. You know, it's it's done well. Um, and Microsoft has never had that. It, you know, it, it fluctuated. It was different with Bill Gates. It was a lot different with Balmer. Uh, and now they've settled into this really weird thing where they get some people to come on stage who you wouldn't necessarily associate with tech in, in the, in, if you met them in public. They're just very odd, but they're great <laughs> because they have a personality. And it it was something that I think Microsoft really lacked uh, before. Um, and so these guys came on the stage and were obviously very excited about this Surface book, which is a, uh, it's a, like a Surface, uh, detachable screen, but of, of course it has this brilliant keyboard dock that makes it into a laptop, but also can contain um, an NVIDIA chipset to give you discrete graphics if you want. Um, a very clever idea, actually. Um, and they. A lot of people, me included, are very excited about it. Can't wait to get our hands on it. And that did overshadow the Surface a bit which is kind of a shame because the Surface has been kind of a big deal for Microsoft. I mean, it may not have sold the most amount of units of any product ever renounced, but it's obviously inspired Apple to some extent because they've got the iPad Pro that's a, you know, arguably takes a few cues from the Surface. Um, and It's fantastic to see Microsoft being the source of some inspiration for people, Uh, but then this, you know, this new uh, Surface Book comes along, and suddenly that's all anyone's talking about. But it looks amazing.
0: I agree, and I think they look very, very uh, compelling. That the design is fantastic. They look, uh, they look very, very, very good, and the and the specs are good. They're very
1: expensive, though. Oh my.
0: They are going to cost. I think the top end model for the Surface Book is pushing something like three and a half thousand dollars. Yeah. Um. So you know these are these are high end. These yeah. are these are expensive. But that will always trickle down as as it as it tends to. But. I, what I find interesting is that um, if you go back to the Microsoft XP era mm. around 2000, 2001, there were some hybrids like this. Um, there was an HP Compaq um, that had was basically a tablet that ran full Windows XP with a detachable keyboard. And it sort of feels quite full circle that Microsoft mm. has finally come back around to the idea of using Windows on, on a tablet, but it took them, you know, f- whatever this is, nearly 15 years to, to get there. and And finally... They've got their dream, yeah, but they're having to do it themselves this time.
1: The technology's caught up, hasn't it? I mean, the, the dream has always been, I think, to have computing be much more portable. And having this tablet form factor is, by its very nature, a bit more portable because you can always detach the screen and just use that um but at the same time you've got these wafer thin keyboards that don't have any electronics behind them and it's a i think the point is it's a reversioning of a laptop isn't it it's, it's it's taking what was beneath the keyboard and putting it behind the screen and modern miniaturization has made that possible without having this huge chunky tablet thing um uh, now you can have a actually a tablet that is really thin and kind of defies belief um and then yeah. You know, you either have a dumb keyboard or you have what Microsoft's done where you put a little bit of extra into the keyboard that that makes it even better value kind of thing. Yeah,
0: well, we've got no launch date or price for the Surface Book in the UK, as we mentioned beforehand, uh, they are extremely expensive on the US side of things. But on the on the UK store, um you are able to pre order the Microsoft Surface Pro 4. Now the Surface Pro three I thought was a fantastic one. I reviewed it for Wired um back when I was when I was there. It's really great. It's running Windows ten. The top end model, I was just very curious. So while we've been talking, I've been uh looking at this. The top end model cost eighteen hundred quid. For the Surface Pro 4.
1: Yeah, that's expensive. I mean, 1800 quid is a loss of money.
0: But that's got a, bearing in mind, these are all fanless designs. Uh, Actually, no, I completely lied. This one isn't fanless. This one has a Core i7 chip, so that's their desktop chip. So it means this one does have a fan. But that's got half a terabyte of storage, 16 gig of RAM, and that is 1800 quid. But on the M side, it's only the very entry level model that has the fanless Core M3
1: chip. The rest are all in the i series, which have fans also, traditionally. Did you notice? And you probably did, but when they were announcing the phones, that they mentioned that they had basically built in water cooling to their phones. I didn't notice it's, it's, that. It's quite good. If you if you go back and watch the presentation. They've um, I don't think Obviously, it's not water cooling in the traditional sense, but there is a a closed loop system in there that they use. And I don't know why, um, but it's interesting because actually, if you think about it, a lot of the problems that people have with phones could possibly be solved by better heat management internally. I've always thought that about Sony phones because they build this, you know, hermetically sealed unit that keeps water out. And then they Mm. have countless problems with overheating, and they always have done since the Z1. Um, And I've got got to say, well, perhaps that's something to do with the way you design, obviously, because heat dissipation is a real, it's an absolutely, you know, it's an impossible thing to get absolutely right a lot of the time, um, especially when you're constrained around design. Uh, So, I don't know, maybe there's a future in water cooling handheld devices to some degree. Maybe I mean I've the the iPad is uh, obviously has no fan. I don't find that has a problem with heat. No, the, the but it's new, a bit it's the, bigger uh, though, aren't they? The iPads and uh, you know same with all tablets really. The size really helps when you're packing a lot in on a an, on a phone. You know, putting it behind a battery which naturally gets hot when it, it discharges, and you know having these processors running at gigahertz. So, you know, it's it's not unsurprising that things get hot, is it? No, true. Well, we're going to have to watch this closely.
0: Obviously, this is coming out in November, uh, which is around the time you'll start finding the iPad Pro in stores. Also, a 12-inch fanless tablet with a smart stylus and a high-res screen and all the uh, all the rest, which we're going to be coming to in a review in a couple of weeks. So don't miss that. But uh, going head-to-head on the big tablets uh, ahead of Christmas. Very exciting. Let us know what you're, you're thinking about these new tablets. Podcast at natelangston.com. Well, we've just got one quick email to round off the end of the day. A little bit of a different bit of feedback that came in here from Ryan, who discovered us via Jonathan Strickland's Tech Stuff podcast, which is fantastic. So hello, Ryan. Now, Ryan says, I'm 16 and wondered what careers I should look into. I love to write and I love tech. So when I found out that you guys review new technology, then write about it. I thought it was something of a dream job. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's what you do. Anyway, I would love to know more about this field and what is required to enter it. Actually, any details or info you can give would be appreciated. Well, I thought this was an interesting way to end the show um, because extremely broadly, I suppose, yes, we do review new technology and write about it. as one aspect of In and I's jobs and have been for the last 10 years, I suppose. <laughs> um, but um, we kind of got into it through similar ways. We're just very into it and wrote a lot about it. And then... Got hired to do it at a time that people were hiring people to write about it online.
1: Yeah, I mean, people actually jobs haven't been too bad recently. That I've seen quite a lot of stuff. Um, you just have to be prepared to come in and work for very little money. I think is the key, yes. which is depressing, um, and something I'm always going to fight against because people should be paid properly. But yeah, I guess if you're if you're twenty, I mean, obviously he's not; he's sixteen. But if you know, if you've finished college or whatever 21 um then you kind of you are prepared to work for a little bit less aren't you and uh, if that gets you a break but you know you did you did it the right way nate you just uh, settled down and set up a blog didn't you
0: yes well I, I taught myself to code and then bunked off school largely to teach myself the other bits <laughs> that i needed and then don't do uh, that kids don't do that but i think three three interesting tips if you are in the in the case of ryan who is 16 loves technology and is curious about writing about it um, number one uh, that will be your advantage. Start now. No, no time like the present to write and to observe what makes other
1: people's writing good a lot of the skill that we gained was um thanks to people like nick at cnet you know um who was our sub it, it, it getting shouted out on a daily basis is uh, yeah. is 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 go- it's a good way of learning it's difficult because obviously you have to get started somewhere but uh, working for free is just that's people taking advantage of you and you have a talent and a skill um you know obviously you have to hone it a bit first but there will always be people who You'll be prepared to read your stuff. It doesn't have to necessarily be you know tech experts. Um, you know, mm. find if you're if you're at school or college, you know, just go and find a you know an English teacher, and they will happily help. I'm sure they'll be probably be blown away by the very idea that someone is voluntarily doing something outside the curriculum. The
0: other thing, the the final point I was going to make is that the the wording that you used in your email, Ryan, said that um, you thought that writing is something of a dream job. While in the past, only writing would have indeed been a possible dream job, these days you will need to expect to be able to write and visually present and possibly even code your uh, opinions in some form. So having a bunch of additional skills, whether that is with how the fundamentals of web design works or coding or um, or photography or editing some kind of media, whether that is in itself websites or apps or just... Um,
1: you know uh, videos and, and photos and what have you well it's definitely useful to go into a job interview or you know to or to pitch a thing with a you know say well look I, not only can I write this review for you or you know look at this product get a hands-on with it whatever I could also give you these great pictures and then show some pictures because honestly these days there is no there's no there's never been any money online for separate photography you know it, it's a pipe dream isn't it well um, back in the day back in the day I mean I'm going back quite
0: a number of years you know 20 odd years maybe there was a time where you could earn more money
1: as a photographer for a newspaper than a writer. Oh, you probably still can, but that's a newspaper, and let's be honest, there are not that many newspaper jobs, are there? You know, if you if photography was your thing, you could go and work for a you know a news agency and probably get a decent salary out of it. Um, unfortunately, and again, this is probably just as bad. I shouldn't be encouraging it because uh, it goes back to the writing thing, but. Uh, writers have now had to become photographers as well, haven't they? Um, so ultimately, we're doing a disservice to professional photographers, I guess. But uh, yes, yeah, so yeah. And as
0: the brother of someone who is a professional photographer, uh, I
1: should probably say and a very ph- good photographer at that. <laughs> <laughs> breathtaking the- photos that guy takes.
0: Yeah, and uh, but it but it has to be paired with knowledge about the subject, and that's the key thing. Yeah, know your subject better than other people, and if you can specialize in something that is new and developing then that's always going to be better because there's always going to be someone that needs to know something better than they do. And if you can be the right person with the right skills at the right time, then you've got a chance. And, uh, and I think that there's going to be lots of opportunities because people's interest in technology ain't going nowhere, my friend. Mm. Um, well, Ryan asked, can I be the ambassador for the podcast for America? Uh, you can, specifically for the United States of America, because I want to leave South America and Canada <laughs> open to other ambassadors because Ryan your enthusiasm is great but let's be honest it's a bloody big place uh, and uh, so yes we've got a few ambassadors for the podcast in different countries or cities so uh, please do let us know if you would like to be your local ambassador it basically involves telling people and colleagues and friends about the show and helping them install it onto their phone or podcatcher or or what and where necessary breaking out the Ferrero Rocher absolutely yes um, thank you to Ryan and thank you earlier to Rob for their emails uh, NateLangson.com is where you can send them or just go to the podcast page on the website and send it through the form which most people do seem to do I've noticed um, we're also at text message pod on Twitter if you want to follow us there I'm also at Nate Langson and Ian is at ianmorris78 yes indeed and on that note we will see you in one week